Welcome to Hot Seating, the drama education podcast with myself, Avian Finnegan. In this podcast, we interview well-known drama practitioners and community artists. We reflect on their drama experiences through the lens of the drama strategies. Like you define the space within your classroom, we are defining the space for conversations about drama in education, not just in Ireland, but all over the world. This is a podcast brought to you by the Association of Drama in Education in Ireland, also known as the ADEI. This week I am hot-seating Dr Kathleen Gallagher. Kathleen is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a Distinguished Professor in the Department of Curriculum, Teaching and Learning, cross-appointed to the Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance Studies at the University of Toronto. Professor Gallagher's research has aimed to make an impact on her understanding of youth and social inequality. Informed by the lived experiences and narratives of youth around the world, her work has had an enormous impact on social and educational policy and professional communities of practice in Canada and around the globe. So pour yourself a cup of tea, sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. Today I'm in the hot seat with Kathleen Gallagher. Uh, Kathleen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Lovely to be here. Thank you. So um, Kathleen, as you know, we are shaping this podcast in the frame of the drama strategies. So we'll start off with still image. So what was your first memory of drama? My first memory, uh, I was about mm, six. And one of my older sisters, I'm the youngest of five, a sister who's 10 years older than me, was 16. And she was at that time taking theater arts in high school and loving it and learning monologues. And she would practice them in her bedroom and I was her audience. So she would set up a little table with a candle on it and it was all very mysterious. She would don a costume And I really remember vividly her doing a Blanche Dubois monologue to me. Um, And I was mesmerized by this transformation of my sister. And of course it was full of lewd language too. So my mother was not thrilled about that particular (laughs) lesson my sister taught me. Um, But I think she, um, she captured my imagination with how much could be altered in the world by a little bit of lighting, an interesting voice, a costume, a dark room. So I think that was my first memory where I thought, this is something interesting. I like this. Do you know, that's funny, Kathleen, because I have a sister who's 10 years older than me and I have very similar memories of, of things like that and standing on yeah. her bed and watching these uh, definitely inappropriate performances that weren't suitable for my age. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but huge, well, we you share know, that then. Yeah, hugely shaping, though, isn't it? Um, when you come from a very family shaping where the rest of your family in, into drama then. No, in fact, um, but quite a number of teachers lots mm-hmm. of teachers and ag- educational publishing. Um, but, but the arts for sure, three of us play music, play piano. Uh, but, but just this one sister and I seem to be the real drama kids in the family. 
that's so nice though and, and is she still involved in drama or she is not but yeah. she attends the theater all the time so she still loves drama but she doesn't do it so much herself equally neither is my sister uh so there you go another thing we share she's yeah. uh, she, she grew out of it and so from that then you obviously got into it and then you went on and became um a high school drama teacher am I am I, I right did. yes yes yeah um that that seemed a foregone conclusion to me as soon as I was uh when I was in university I I did my undergraduate degree in French and so I ended up um studying a lot of French theater I took multiple courses in French dramatic literature, in classical French theater, in uh, avant-garde French theater. And I think one of my early influences was was a professor uh, by the name of John Gilbert, who taught in the French department, but was himself an actor uh, in in the Shaw Festival and in the Stratford Festival. But I studied uh, plays with him. And I think what I learned in, in his seminar course was how the world of the play could be so much in conversation with the world I was living in. And he was a beautiful lecturer. And it's also where the idea of metaphor as a kind of door to open thinking uh, really was brought to vivid life for me. That, that metaphor and these alternate worlds had something to say to the big questions that I and, and others were, were addressing in the so-called real world. So I, th- I think that was an early influence for me and I knew at that point, I definitely wanted to to teach uh, in a high school and teach drama. And I spent 10 years doing that. And I was in a really wonderful context. Um, uh, It was a Catholic girls school, but publicly funded, not private. It was very, very multiracial, very multi-ethnic, very multilingual. And, you know, with a with a nun who who ran a tight ship but was also a real believer in the arts Mm. and so I felt uh, incredibly supported in what I was doing and um, and I was very connected to the Toronto theater scene and so every year I would take all of the classes of the school to see seven plays in the course of a year we would you know, over the two terms and every grade from nine to two at that, at that time, 13, uh, see a lot of theater. And so I felt like um, we were doing the drama and we were also making connections to the theater making world that just raised the stakes of everything we were doing and brought my own students into really close contact with so many wonderful theatre makers in the 90s in in Toronto. I'm a big believer of 
providing students with these really enriching theatre experiences because I often think that Mm -hmm. you know sometimes as practitioners we expect them to delve into drama and theatre without having um, kind of laid the foundations and shown them what's out there so I I think it's so important to to bring them to these shows and how difficult was that to get them out there or did you find their well you see that that was the thing I I didn't have a template for this, but I wrote a long letter to all of the parents of the students in the drama program in the school. And I was the only drama teacher. And I basically explained to them quite what you've just been saying, that it wasn't a field trip. It wasn't a diversion from the real stuff, that it was really fundamental to their understanding of what what a theater making community does how theater communicates, all of the pieces of live theater making, you know, what what it means to be in the audience, how you receive a piece of theater. And they had to write these play reviews um, always after we saw them. So I taught them a lot. We we read every day the reviews of the shows around town in class. In fact, (laughs) it was a requirement if you were late for my class that you had to read a play review from one of the dailies and come and present that review the next day to your peers if you'd come late the day before. I had all of these tricks to you know, have, have students really immersed in the world of theater. So they took that up. In fact, some students tried to be late so that they could read a play review and present it to their peers. <laughs> That's what <laughs> you want, it became, isn't it? It became a kind of, you know, status symbol that you'd done this work and you knew what was going on in town and you could share it with your peers. So uh, being connected as a, as a drama practitioner, you know, in my little world of my school, being connected to the larger theater community was really fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it was, as you say, it was building a kind of foundation and the parents bought it because the principal bought it. Mm. And everyone assumed that what I said was true. And I guess I believed it enough to sound convincing. Mm. And so um, I had people on board. I never had a, I will tell you a funny story though. This is pretty hilarious. (laughs) The very first play I took grade nine students to, about 75 of them, was a German play done at the Tarragon Theater and uh, in translation. And it was the wonderful Tanya Jacobs uh, solo show. And in the first five minutes of the play, she pulls a rabbit out of her vagina. So, (laughs) oh no. (laughs) I, you can imagine as a 22 year old teacher, I was pretty terrified and I had all of my stories in my head going back to the school, imagining that the, that the principal would be receiving multiple phone calls. Yeah. But you know what's amazing? I believed that it was important. So they believed it was important. So nobody reported to their families that this lewd thing had happened in the theater. No calls came to the principal, though I waited all the next day to be called to her office, which didn't happen. <laughs> And I realized at that point, you know, when you have people, especially in a school, who are prepared to take the arts seriously, 
And we don't have to worry about those things that most people worry about. Is this appropriate or is this too abstract or too, or is it offensive? No, when, when you take seriously that this is, whether it's playful or serious, this is an important communication and it's the result of tremendous creative, imaginative work of a lot of people, then that's the expectation you create. And people are not scandalized, people are not worried. So I felt from right from the beginning that in a sense, the students I taught took on this idea that what they studied was no less important than anything else that was going on in the school. And I tried to build on that reality for the 10 years that I was there. You know, it's so true. And that is something that we really worry about. And I worry about uh, when I'm bringing students to, to productions or the things that we share within a workshop or a class that you're always kind of worried about the line and, and crossing the line. Um, yeah. I often get students asking me actually, um, students that are in my, uh, in my class drama teaching students, um, they often say, but if we, if we, if we broach this topic or if we talk about this, how do we know that there isn't going to be um, a response from parents, a negative response? Um, and is that, is that everything, is that, is that anything you worry about now? I know you, you said there that you feel like it's not something that was a factor then. No, um, I don't, I don't worry about that. I certainly don't worry. I, I worry about the people who are in front of me. Yeah. And, and I worry about creating um, a, a, a caring context in which people feel um, valued and that there will not be risks taken without protections for people. That risk is important, but it has to be done in this context of um, utmost care. And, you know, a sense of collective caretaking. So it's, it's, not, it's not the leader alone, the facilitator, because it's impossible to know. It's, it's truly impossible to know what will be difficult or dangerous for all of those different people in front of you. And so that has to be something that is negotiated moment by moment by everyone in the room. And I think if that's done, no one outside that room will have much to say about it. It won't be a concern. And if it is, then I feel that the people in the room who have done the caretaking will, able, will be able to speak very eloquently to the value of what has gone on, even if it has included difficult conversations or challenging subject matter. I don't think anything is too difficult for children and young people. I, I truly don't. So, you know, that, that question then or now is the same for me, that if what you're doing, you are doing with a shared sense of responsibility and utmost care, then you won't put a foot wrong. And if you do, <laughs> which can happen, as we know, unintentionally, then that same caretaking will come into play, that same... Um, sense of collective responsibility will need to be called upon in order to work through whatever has come undone. It's just not possible to know, 
to to claim that a space is safe. <laughs> it's yeah. only possible to say that together we are always working towards that safety and we have to be available to those things that we couldn't anticipate or that we simply can't know because we occupy different social positions from one another. Mm. So yeah, I would do it then as now. That's uh, that's really good to know. And I think it's very good advice. And Kathleen, can I ask you uh, for your teacher in role moment? So what was a standout drama moment for you as a practitioner? So it's a really old one. Um, there have been so many, but I feel like I want to tell this one, even though it's it's maybe the first one I wrote about, you know, over 20 years ago, but I, I want to touch down on it again, because I think it, it also speaks to my innocence and naivete as a new young drama teacher. Um, so delighted by teacher and role as I am today. Uh, I, I, that that's a go-to for me for sure but we were in role and we were working with um, a story drama and uh, thank you David Booth <laughs> and we had read a story um, that uh, I'm forgetting the exact source but it was from an indigenous <clears throat> an original indigenous story about a young girl and uh, her relationship with her mother and her mother becomes a star in the course of the story and it's quite a powerful and um, and difficult story because the mother has to decide to leave her daughter and become a star in the sky so her daughter can see her but can't touch her or be with her anymore so we're as you might imagine, we were exploring all kinds of angles of this seemingly fantastical story in this group of grade 10 drama students. And there was one um, girl who was otherwise quite quiet, quite shy in the, in the group. And she jumped into role as, as everyone else did. And we were exploring many different angles of, you know, what was not at least for a group of 14, 15 year old girls, a particularly easy story to work with. And um, this one girl, I had noticed her deep engagement and I'd noticed it because she had been otherwise quite quiet and remote. But this particular in-role work had really brought her to life. And then she was absent, she was away. She was away two days in a row. And I went to the office to see if I could find out what had happened. We were still going on with the drama. And they said oh, that she had just been away. And then four days passed and I went back to the office and they said, oh, I think you should go speak to her guidance counselor. So I sought out the guidance counselor who told me that um, sometime just before uh, we had begun the drama work, her own mother had left Toronto and gone to live in Nova Scotia, in the east coast of Canada, and that she had been staying here with her grandmother, and that there had been some difficulty and some conflict. So what they had learned at the school 
was that she left to go to Nova Scotia to find her mother. And I never got to speak with that student again. She didn't come back to the school, but I've told myself this story for many years that the proximity of the real world to the imagined world for her was something powerful and in a sense life-changing because she had made the decision to find her mother. And there was nothing in the classroom about her participation that would have alerted me to anything extraordinary or anything. As I said, the only thing I noticed was she was, she was captivated, but, but many students were captivated and interested. And then she was gone. So I, I took many lessons from that um, teacher and role and that role play. One is that I am a, we are um, poor judges of the interior worlds of others and that we should not make assumptions, um, that we should know that the real and imagined are in a kind of dynamic interplay at all times, even in playful role play work, that the consequences can be enormous for young people engaging with drama, as seemed to be the case here. And that the work matters, that the work is important. And, you know, there, there may have been other stories to tell from this, but this, this was my early teaching lesson, that I could take nothing for granted, that I needed to take care of people in role, that I could not make assumptions based on how people appeared to be engaged or disengaged, that there were deep internal worlds for everyone in the room, and that those internal worlds are our store as we you know, improvise with one another and create that we're drawing from our affective and other senses, our memories, our histories. And uh, so it made me want to do that work. It made me more thoughtful about the work that I would do in role. It made me um, be more explicit about the possible risks and also the possible rewards of playing in an imagined world. And knowing that even the most fantastical story can be metaphorically or analogously deeply related to our own so-called real lives. So that, that's an early role play for me that I think was shaping as a, for me as a teacher. You mentioned before that drama is a rehearsal um, for children, a rehearsal for things mm. that they get to do in real life. And I think that's a really good example of, of what you were speaking about. Um, yeah. Can, can you tell me uh, about your own role on the wall, an influential person um, or idea that's shaped your practice? Mm. Well, I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll return to David Booth for sure, because he was my, my supervisor and I, I worked an awful lot with him and, you know, we, we lost him in 2018 and he was a, he was a, a giant in Canada, a drama giant. 
um, what a great legacy being called a drama giant (laughs) (laughs) you're right in stature if not size and but actually that's the part that I would that's the part that I will share uh, of his influence you know you you probably can't find a drama practitioner in this country and and indeed internationally um, who hasn't in some way been influenced or affected by David Booth's work in drama and in role in particular. So stature. I remember being a student and going regularly with David I would, in, under the auspices of being his research assistant when I was a graduate student. And, uh, and he would work with children in a particular school that he had a long time relationship with. And so the teachers and the students in the school, it was like they, they waited for a friend every week to come and the friend came and magic happened. And in the course of my time um, observing David work, I was, I was often struck by how different he and I were temperamentally with in, 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 in working with children. And that's probably why I I was so attracted to his practice, which I think many, many might agree who ever saw him work. He worked very strongly in role and the stakes were always extremely high. (laughs) And he believed in role, role play as a place to preserve the dignity of people and of characters. So I remember sometimes how forcefully he would speak to students in role and out of role if they were not committed to the work. Mm. And that, that's where I think he and I differed. You know, I, I might um, more gently <laughs> encourage engagement but David was fierce in that regard. And it was awesome how he, uh, he earned respect of children because he expected much of them. And I know uh, I'm that way inclined too, but I learned an awful lot from him that the expectations have to be high, are always high. And I watched him in many different contexts, even when there were reluctant young people Um, he made them answer to their own emotions and to their own behaviors. He made them um, be responsible for what they were bringing or not bringing to to the larger group. And sometimes that was done with a really heavy hand, but it was always done with respect. And I think it surprised many young people because they were accustomed to teachers who probably feel more um, like their hands are tied uh, because they're in the school and they have to do it a particular way. And they're, they're cautious about how they engage with children. And David was never cautious. He was, he took, he took the, 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 uh, the drama building moment as an opportunity to meet them 
and he wasn't, that meeting was not going to be shaped by some institutional norm or some way that things are done in schools or some ways that children are expected to behave with adults. All of that was off for him. And I, I'm really grateful that I watched him work so strongly and with such demand in the early days of my shaping as a drama practitioner, because I took that in. I, I of course do it differently because I don't have David's wit. His wit was his secret weapon. And, you know, to watch him hold the highest expectations, but also hold children in the highest esteem. Both those things were true. And he was fierce about drama being important and, and relevant to the world. Sorry, I miss him a lot. Anyway. It's okay, take, take a minute if you need it. He was a great teacher. I was lucky to study with him. He sounds so passionate. I would have loved to have seen that. Uh, I, and I can, from your description, I can really, really imagine it as well, that fierce head on kind of meeting it. Oh. And I think as well, children really do, if you have high expectations for them, they really do rise to it, don't they? Um, and you're just Always. making me think there now when you're when you're speaking, I'm like, God, I, I need to introduce a bit more of that fierceness into my own practice and, and, and have that, yeah. that higher expectation. It, it, it is. It's so inspiring. It really is. Um, and you're right that we underestimate all the time, not just in schools. You, you said you have a young child. And I remember when I had a young child, I thought they are so much smarter than we ever have believed them to be. I yeah. feel so foolish. Mm. You know, I felt foolish with a really young child that I had imagined, you know, some half-baked person. Yeah, that's so <laughs> and true. What I realized, yeah, it's and 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 as a parent, you just learn over and over that ah, do not underestimate. It is it is, it, is, it is an illness of our education systems mm. that we expect too little. Mm. And that doesn't mean that children who struggle don't deserve every single support, but they do not deserve lower expectations. No, and nobody does. So I, no. think that, I think that's a really good no. value to have when you're teaching. Um, Kathleen, no, can fine. I ask you, can we delve into your conscience, Ali? Um, yeah. Can you tell me, you have a time where it all went wrong I have many of those times to be honest <laughs> it all went wrong um you know what that's this is a terrible question because <laughs> I know there must be many wrong moments but I had a hard time thinking about what I would share um I think because one of my one of my beliefs about drama is that all failure is survivable. Mm. So when something goes badly wrong, the challenge is what the recovery looks like. Yes. So I don't, I don't feel, I don't, I don't feel marked by failure. I feel that failure has improved my practice and my memory, therefore, of those instances are of the recoveries and of the sharp turns and the and the lessons to be reaped 
from mm. whatever wasn't going well. Um, I, I, I will, I'll tell you a funny thing that, that happened when I was a high school drama teacher that made me think um, a whole bunch of things about the value of drama in schools for children. Um, we were doing that, that, you know, silly play, wrong number, you know, the Hitchcock yeah. play. Sorry, wrong number. Sorry, wrong number. And the, the students had rehearsed so diligently and we were making such a good effort at staying true to the genre. And it was a big performance night in the school auditorium, which of course doubled as a gym. So there were unraked seats, hundreds of parents sitting out before them. And as I told you before, this school was a very, very multicultural school. And so it came to the critical moment at the end of the play where the phone just rings and rings and rings and you know, no mm. one's gonna answer it. And there's silence in this huge gymnasium, all the parents watching, the poignant end of the, end of the, of the play for these more senior drama students who took their work very seriously. And from the audience in a loud voice, we hear an Italian grandfather yell out, nobody home, what you gonna do? <laughs> of course, his, his granddaughter was one of the stars of the show and she was mortified. And, of, you know, in the moment they were devastated because the audience just uh, laughed uproariously because it was hilarious. The lesson we took away from that was that when you're on stage, and I don't think I knew this as a high school drama student, and I didn't even know this as a university drama student. When you're on stage, you're communicating with an audience and it is a live event. No matter how much we say that, I think we don't often see enough of what that means for something to be truly live in the in the theater world because we mostly see unbelievably polished pieces mm. with very well behaved audiences and in this case you know the audience the jig was up the audience said you know sort of stole the thunder <laughs> and when i talked to the students after we talked about you know as performers you put something out there into the world and you can't control how that's taken up or received. And that's the mystery of audience reception that everyone out there is connecting or disconnecting in a whole variety of ways. And that the best you can do is put out your truest and, and most authentic communication and hope that it lands for people. Mm. And you know, it did land for that grandfather, not in the way that anyone was hoping, no. but he was definitely engaged. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, even even that most hilarious flop of a of of um, a show at the ending was so full of lessons about what the theater is, what the theater does, how people engage with it you know, how hilarious it can be when it's not trying to be. And so, yeah, I guess survivable failure, 
lessons to be reaped. I think at the, at the root of it, all drama people are improvisers and they're improvisers in role and they're improvisers in life. And so to be able to build that particular resource as a human that I can make something of something else or make something of a mistake or make something of an unanticipated turn is such a life skill. It's mm. such a, it's such a powerful lesson to learn that the story is never over, that the, that the disaster has a, an epilogue mm. and that you have a role in creating that epilogue. So yeah, that's my I love that. I, I think that's a, a real embedded skill that drama gives to, to young people. Um, and there's mm -hmm. nothing like, I know for me as an actor, there's nothing like a show where somebody else drops their line and you get to recover yeah. and fix it. Uh, and equally, like yes. what you're saying in a drama class, if, uh, that's happened to me where things don't go the way you think they're going to go. And then they segue into something more beautiful that you could never have imagined. Yes. So often. Mm. Yeah. Kathleen Gallagher. We, so I've, I was saying to you before the interview, I could read for weeks about you because there is so much that you have done in your career. Um, you have the longest CV I've ever seen, um, which is brilliant. Um, so for you, I'm just trying to think, what is the future of drama? We're going to thought track right here. Um, what do you think the future of drama is? What should it be? Um, but also what you think it might be and that can be in general or it can be for you personally mm. great questions I think that you know professional theater and school theater and drama and community-based drama is probably two two things are going on we're getting adept and creative in digital platforms people are discovering astonishing new ways to make theater in, in, in digital and online worlds. And people are also unbelievably hungry for unmediated by the screen, yeah. <laughs> actual theater connection and contact in a room uh, with other people breathing the same air and being annoyed by someone un unwrapping their candy and uh, you know, being all that audiences are in that live moment um, brought together uh, to experience something that is only going to happen this once in this way. So I think, I imagine that, that the innovation that we've seen in the digital world will continue because I think it has not only sparked a lot of creative interest but it has opened up the question of accessibility in ways that um, are long overdue in the theater world, which can be very middle-class and very exclusionary. So I think that will continue, but I also think that people will be hungry for spectacular live events. There's so much talk now about when Broadway will open. So the big production value stuff will come back with a roar because you know it had to face its mortality in some ways and so I think it's going to come back really strong but what I think might be most important about 
what's next and certainly what I want to be caring about is a renewed interest in the local, the small and the, um, the community building. And I think that theater projects can do that almost like nothing else, whether that's in a community setting or in a school or even in the professional theater world in the industry. I think people are missing what they didn't even know was so fundamental to putting a piece of art together, which is the creative community that you have to care for and build and take care of and wrestle with while you're doing such an enterprise. So I think there might be and should be a renewed attention to what it means as an ensemble to make, to create something of value to both those in the ensemble and to a, an imagined particular audience, not just a random grouping, but to people that you feel responsible to be in communication with. And I, I'm not sure that any, any kind of theater has paid enough attention to who is in the audience, to those they wish to communicate with. Um, the theater world has its own marketing <laughs> challenges and, and uh, economic um, struggles and imperatives. And schools are meant to be communicating to schools themselves, to parent communities, families, and the same with community-engaged, community-based work. But I think that in theater going forward, people are going to be much more intentional about who they're engaging with because that's going to become part of what gets created. That the communication with particular audiences is going to shape how the work is made. Mm. And I feel like that may change the way work gets made and it may change who comes to the theater and I think both of those things would be valuable. I think there's room for change in both of those areas for sure um, and I think it's interesting because like your research has been so far-reaching in terms of the the global research that you've done in Taiwan and, and England um, and those those projects looked at such uh, a wide variety of, of diverse um, backgrounds and everything. Yeah. So is that a conclusion yeah. that you've come to maybe from, from looking at those types of communities? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's such, a, that's such a great question because when, I, when I'm asked to explain, you know, the last project and the current project, which has even another site involved, I'll, I'll just say all of the sites for listeners so they know mm. it's Toronto in Canada, Kaohsiung in Taiwan, Bogota in Colombia, Coventry in England, Athens in Greece, and Lucknow in India. So these are wildly diverse places and continents in the world. And in terms of global research, I think, you know, both in academia and in the world at large, 
we have some very highfalutin, very big ideas about what it means to do global work, global research, or work with global impact. And what often is forgotten that we have really deeply discovered in our network of researchers is that this global is made up of multiple locals, that the local and the global are in such an intimate conversation with each other, and that our global network is really um, a, a group of quite distinct local communities who have pedagogical and aesthetic, artistic, um, cultural practices that are very particular. And the, in a sense, the more attention we pay to the specificity of those local sites and theater making spaces, the richer our global conversation becomes. So rather than reaching out and thinking large and wide, we've drilled down to say, what are these quite distinct differences or indeed commonalities? You know, how do we think different, differently pedagogically? Why this artistic practice over that one? Mm. And we've, we put on the table some, some in, in the current project, verbatim theater, site-specific theater, and devising. Those are the three genres over the three years that we work with. But we want those genres to be so locally inflected, so locally translated, that in fact, that theater genre becomes something much bigger and more diverse than we ever imagined it to be from, from our own local situatedness. So the fact that we begin with what might be an enabling constraint, let's all work with this form of verbatim theater. And then what transpires are, you know, what, what is a value to capture in Bogota compared to Toronto? You know, what are the questions that get raised for young people if we're asking about, as is the current project, the climate emergency? Um, and we are able then through this shared structure to make it really tangible to these local sites and to surface, I think, understandings that if we did the broad global sweep, we would all revert to our deep-seated stereotypes. <laughs> we would be trying to make ourselves appreciable to the other in those very, very um, expected normative ways. And instead here, we're looking at the small, we're looking at the local, and we're surfacing all kinds of things about ourselves and about others that are so far off the beaten track, that are so much not those fixed stereotypical views of different places. So that's, I think you're right that that insight to me about the profound value of the local comes perhaps ironically from this global global study mm. yeah I can't wait to to hear more about your your study do you think you'll um like your previous study you made it into a play um yes is, I, I is that something that you think you might do with this one as well yeah it's it's not something 
thing. It's not a decision that's made at the end. It's a, it's, it's um, part of the methodological structure of the work. And it was with the last project. And Andrew Kushner, who's a Toronto-based um, verbatim playwright artist, was embedded in that project over the five years. And he traveled everywhere with us. And he engaged in all of our online communications with our international collaborators. And he had his own encounters with the young people and with the practitioners and in those sites. And of course, all of us, and I ha usually have a large team, you know, eight to 10 graduate students. And um, we're building a lot of qualitative and quantitative knowledge ac across those sites which Andrew, our embedded playwright, has access to all the way through. And in an interesting sort of way, he makes his own um, research study of the research because he's researching as a playwright. And mm. so he would sometimes interview me or interview some of the graduate student team members to say, I'd like to, I'd like to get deeper with you on this field note that you've written because I'm interested in what you were seeing. So in a funny sort of way, we've made ourselves the objects of the research as well as, <laughs> as, as others being the objects of the research. Inception. And it's this kind of, <laughs> yeah, this sort of, you know, circular um, layered um, series of, of methodological steps. So yes, Andrew is part of the team again this year or the, the next five years. And um, all of our work in Toronto has moved, as you would know, online over the last year. So we we have weekly meetings with the drama club and with the teacher, the wonderful teacher we're working with. And uh, extraordinary things have been discovered doing digital drama. Um, and there are parts of it that I will miss when we return. And one of those things I would say is an unexpected and quite exceptional intimacy that the space has provided, especially for uh, students who find other aspects of drama challenging um, in face-to-face. -face. So we'll return, we'll all return, and we'll return to being able to visit one another. The, all of the international collaborators were meant to um, join us in Toronto uh, the fall of last year. We would have our collaborator meeting and bring all of us together in Toronto and spend a week together. But none of that could happen, of course. Mm -hmm. So we've been trying to rebuild something with each other through our regular online meetings. Um, and we found some interesting things there. So nothing has been lost, survivable failure, <laughs> recovery, the lesson goes on and on and on. Um, but you know, we will, we will be in touch again, there will be a play um, we want this play to have a really low carbon footprint. <laughs> we want the play and the work that's created in the context of this research to be in a rigorous dialogue with questions of climate justice. And so our art making practices, our pedagogy, our research steps going forward will be attempts to be in alignment with all of all that we're learning about um, what we can be doing, what we might be doing, how we can imagine uh, justice for the environment. And of course, 
social justice because these two things are inextricably linked. Oh, I can't wait um, to hear uh, what the conclusions are there. Um, so we're going to go into our quick fire round, Kathleen. Um, so this okay. is the round that we call Spotlight On. Uh, so we try and make them short and sharp, uh, hopefully not too shocking. Um, so I just have three questions for you, if you can answer them uh, quickly. Okay. Me. So the first one is, what is your why? Why do you do it? Why should anyone do drama um, or be involved in this industry at all? And if you could sum it up um, as briefly as you can. I think people should do drama uh, to find out who they really are and to upturn whatever they think, whoever they think others are. Oh, that was a good answer, Kathleen. <laughs> How did you think of that so quickly? Um, it's so true. I don't as know. Well. <laughs> it's so true because uh, from all the bits I've read about you as well, like, it's about that, you know, flipping it, flipping it on its head and, and finding out the essence of things that you might have already put a, a label on or projected your own, your own thoughts onto. So one drama strategy or technique that you always go to. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say teacher and role for sure. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is. It's a very flexible. Mostly one. because I want to play too. I want to play too. I want to be in the world. I want, I want to be part of the making. Yeah. yeah. And I want to be on a, on a level footing. Yeah. I love it. I like that. Um, one piece of advice for other drama practitioners that you have. Stay with the trouble. I'm saying that when you're making the art, and especially if you're doing it with young people and your internal alarms are causing you to worry, don't race away from the worry too quickly. Sit with what is troubling you and why your instincts are challenging you. Because I think there's something to be discovered in that place. So that that's what I mean, more so than than thinking about the rest of the world. It's it's your own impulses, your own instincts, the ways we've been shaped and to say to, to give yourself the time and indeed to share that with the community you're working with to see whether it can be opened up to be a shared trouble to look at. Kathleen Gallagher, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Um, and thank you for giving me so much of your time and sharing all those really wonderful stories and memories with us. Um, and I just want to wish you as well to, uh, to stay with the trouble. Ah, thank you. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Hot Seating, the drama education podcast brought to you by the Association of Drama in Education in Ireland. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please tell a friend or two, like and subscribe to hear further conversations.